Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Luke McGregor. Well, William, Luke William McGregor. I've got a middle name. Luke William McGregor. Now, is William a family name? I'm always interested in this because my name, of course, is William and it is a family name. It is my grandfather's name and my middle name is James, which is my other grandfather's name. My parents weren't particularly original when it came to naming me as a child, just looked around looked around the family and went, let's just call him Granddad Grandpa Anderson. But uh, what about you? Where does William come from? Uh, our mum and dad were just huge fans of the Gruen Transfers, so when I was born, they yeah. were... <laughs> <laughs> um, that I, I think it's from grandpa. I think it's from a grandfather. No, not grandfather. Great grandfather, maybe. I, I don't. I, I think it's from someone who called Bill in my family going back. But I'm not sure. I should ask. Yeah, no, I actually don't know. I know Luke's from Luke Skywalker because they were big fans of. Are you serious? Yeah, they were huge fans of Star Wars. So they tried to name Scott and John, my other brothers, after um, names that weren't um, easy to rhyme with, like. It's hard to think of a, a, a rhyming. I mean, we're both we're both professional comedians. Can you think of something yeah. that rhymes with Scott that's insulting or John? Like, I like to think of um, with Scott. Snot. Was, God, I, I needed you when I was little. Okay. Grot. Grot. <laughs> All um, I thought of was Scotty Potty. But Luke, 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 I used to get Luke puke at school. Um, yeah, of course. It's not actually really good. I'll, I'll use it at Christmas. Um, anyway. So they were sort of names that were more practical, whereas Luke, Luke was just named after Luke Skywalker because they loved Star Wars at the time. I mean, I guess at least they went with, like, one of the good characters because I don't know how far they were into the Star Wars trilogy at the point that they named you, but it could have gone either way. Some of those characters have big turns. So, like, I mean... Oh, yeah. Much tougher on the Tasmania playgrounds for little Darth than it is for little Luke, I imagine. <laughs> or Jar Jar. Like, yeah. <laughs> brutal, huh? Yeah, you're right. It's it's risky because I mean, Luke had three more. Luke Luke ended up having six films. So um, yeah, no five. Sorry. Um, yeah, so it was a risk, but um, it paid off okay. I, I I still get a lot of "I am your father" like even today, um, which um, from memory is not a quote from the film. I think he says, I think that's one of those things where you think he says "I am your father," but he actually says. Like he says, who I can't, I can't, I can't remember the quote myself. But um, well, I think he doesn't say, "Luke, I am your father." Oh, right. He says, I he think he says, might say, "No, I am your father." No, or something I am like your that. father. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a very like a Mori Povich episode. No, you're the daddy. No, you're the daddy. <laughs> well, we've got the results, and they're waiting backstage. When you are named after a character from like a popular movie like that, what does it affect your relationship with Star Wars? Were you? Like, did you, were you raised as a Star Wars fan, like identifying with this idea of like, look at this hero from this popular movie that kids love. I am actually named after this hero or does it go the opposite direction? Yeah, I, I, I never thought about it actually, but it, it, I, I loved it because I was a fan. But if I wasn't, um, yeah, I, I don't know how that would have affected me. Like growing up, like it was, it was in space and there were, you know, laser swords. I was going to love it as a kid, but... Yeah, I, I'm just trying to think of like a, a show that I wasn't a fan of growing up, uh, like Melrose Place or something and being named after one of the main <laughs> characters. Um, it, it's, um, yeah, it, 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 I liked it because Luke was, you know, you know, he was heroic and he, um, he was an underdog and mm. he didn't have a great relationship with his dad, which he eventually healed and I don't have a great relationship with my dad, although we haven't, um, he never chopped off my hand. Uh, so it was... Um, 
Yeah, I, I found a lot to relate to. Well, even when you think when you put it that way, when you call your kid Luke after Luke Skywalker, you are really setting up for an uncomfortable relationship with your dad. I mean, that is the whole storyline of those movies. There is something about that that is on the parent in that situation, I would have thought. I do kind of like that, um, I don't know, I, I feel lucky that I really like the character, but um, yeah, I don't, I, it's, I think I feel like it's a risk, especially especially having hearing, hearing you say that um, you're naming yourself after someone who could turn bad or have a, by the second film, could be awful, so... Yeah, I got lucky. Well, it's one of those things where a lot of people complain about Star Wars when they make changes. You know, the big complaint is always, you ruined my childhood. But in your case, literally, yeah. it would have been like, you've ruined my name. I am named after this you've character. Actually, you've actually ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> just, writing, just writing angrily to George, like begging George Lucas from, from this video I make from high school. George is like, Luke, I'm trapped in a locker again. You need to change the character. <laughs> He's, you're going to change it back to good man. It's killing me. <laughs> Um, so tell people about young uh, Luke Skywalker, William McGregor. So Tasmania, is that where you grew up? Yeah, um, I grew up in Tassie in Hobart in a suburb called Glenorchy, um, which was one of the uh, – it was it – was it was – wasn't it wasn't dangerous. I've got a joke in – I've got a joke in uh, stand-up where I say it's not – it wasn't a dangerous suburb, but there are a lot of people on skateboards. Mm. It was very scary. It was it – was, it was a um, – it was one of the. It was a suburb that had um, mostly private schools, and I went to the one private. Uh, mostly public schools, and I went to the one private one. Um, uh, it was a cheap public private school, but it was still a. You know, I used to wear a blazer, and um, so I. And that, because I uh, had big red hair and glasses, I used to get teased a lot on the because of the school bus. The private and the public school kids would all catch the same one. So there'd be a couple of private school kids dressed to the hilt with like badges we had to wear if we had like I had a badge from the choir, I had a badge from um, St Vincent de Paul, and then and then all the public school kids. So it was a it was a it was a real gauntlet getting home. It was a one one guy came in just carrying a boxing bag like he was like a like a villain. He just had a boxing bag. <laughs> And was just like looking at me, going, "Can I have your glasses?" Just holding a boxing bag. It was just, like, it was just, it was too. It was like what you'd write a kid would like if we were writing a sitcom. It was that sort of bully. Like he's, he was that level of. Yeah, it was. Um, I didn't. I I hated school. Okay, so and, yeah, um, all right, so. Well, Sorry, I deviated from the class. No, I mean, that, 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 these are good areas. Like, I mean, you know, normally I need to, you know, pry people into the, you know, most personal aspects of their life, you know, which is the joy of the podcast. But <laughs> yeah, you, you just mentioned a suburb. I, I just mentioned it. Oh, it's probably real. Essentially, so far, we've just talked about your name and where you grew up and you've managed to talk about an uncomfortable relationship with your dad being locked in a locker yes. by bullies and now Sorry, being dad. threatened on a bus and hating school. Yeah. So, look, we're... Seven minutes in, and we're off to a flyer for this podcast. <laughs> so I've got a dentist appointment at nine thirty, so I'm gonna run. <laughs> so, okay, so you, when you say you hated school, like, I mean, t- tell us a little bit about that because did you like the educational aspect of it? Did you just not like the social aspect of it? Did you like hate every aspect? What was there anything about it that you did respond to? Um, I liked the friends I made. Um. And a lot of them I've still got, um, but the education aspect not so much. I feel like they were. Um, I feel like they had a. And I get you know what else can you do? You you can't really individualize your 
you know, for every single child. But I did, you know, I think I feel like when you going through school, it was very much, you know, this is how we do it, and it's not going to, we're not going to target anyone. Um, and then it was, um, uh, and then yeah, and then I just, and I because I was um, the way I looked, like my parents said to me once, I always remember, <laughs> I just kind of don't want to my confidence, but they said. Uh, they said, listen, because of the way you look, you're going to get teased, so we're going to enroll you in martial arts. But the problem with martial arts is, um, as much as I think they're great, most of the bullies are like double the size of you when you're that age. Like you're up to their belt buckle. You know, there's not even if you can kick above your head, you're still kicking their waist. So it's not that useful. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, – I know it's a podcast, but I, I, I should just try and show you a photo of what it looked like. But um, I uh, – it was um, – uh, I actually have to send this. I'll, I'll just show you, Will. I don't know if you can put it up on the, just so you can get a taste of what it was. Oh, I mean, I it, look, oh, that is a very handsome young kid, I, I've got to say. <laughs> it's a lie. That, no, I mean, in retrospect, that is a handsome looking doesn't, young kid. Doesn't it look, I mean, I don't know if there's a way we can show this to the viewers, mm. but it looks like, doesn't that look like a, it was grown in a test tube? To be bullied, like, uh, like if you were, if you were, if you were going to test some anti-bully spray, that's kind of the the child you would use. I mean, firstly, I just would have suggested when they were taking that school photo that they made you smile a little less, like you didn't have. How <laughs> do you? Didn't have to show every single one of your teeth. <laughs> like it's a it's a it's a lot of it's a it's the whole like it's it's like I've got one of those contraptions that opens it up so the dentist can do their work. Right. Yeah, it's, that's um, that's how you were smiling, like leading with your teeth, but also. Were they not? Could they not find you a child's pair of glasses? The idea that they had to get you this comically huge pair of glasses to be wearing seems that just just this. I think they just had some leftover metal in the shed and <laughs> welded it together. Yeah, it was. Um, but but uh, that that was definitely where comedy started forming because at school was when I um I, I started using humor as a way of sort of getting teased less because if I could make the bully laugh, they wouldn't. Um, uh, mock me. Um, and I do wonder now. And I this is maybe this is too early to get into it, but I do wonder, Will, if you have a thoughts on whether um something has something bad has to happen before you can be funny, or whether um you can be funny and we just happen to have some of us just happen to have something bad happen to us as well. It's interesting. It's a good question, Luke. So, okay, talk to me about it from your perspective first, and let's explore it. So, because this is a bit of a comedy theme like it's certainly something that people talk about which is the capacity to use humor as a way to diffuse you know physical violence or being picked on certainly i am somebody who has never been up for physical confrontation and i know that like humor was almost always my way to avoid or or, to be honest sometimes provoke physical confrontation like sometimes my humor would then lead to somebody else wanting to punch me it didn't always work effectively as a shield it sometimes worked as a sometimes worked as an invitation for somebody to punch me rather than the other way around but so talk to me about what your circumstances were like and how humor became that defense system um i used it by um I just, I mean, early on, I guess I just realised that laughter made everyone feel good. Um, even though, you know, we all know that sort of. Uh, I, I realised I could sort of, if I could, I could sort of bring that out of people. That I, um, I just got better and better at finding ways to do it. Like, 
Uh, I remember once I was at school, and uh, I think my, my first my first uh, public joke was um, the teachers saying um, that the, the 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 bell going off, and then me. Um, she said, there's about to be a fire drill. And then uh, there was a fire drill. And when the drill went off, I stood up and screamed, um, we're all going to die and ran out of the classroom. <laughs> and um, and that got laughs. But then I got detention. But I'm like, oh, that's worth it. I'm happy to, like, I'm happy to sacrifice. <laughs> but also, yeah. that's just somebody who's committed to a fire drill. Like, you've got to do the yeah, drill yeah. in the same circumstances as you would react in the fire. And there's going to be at I least agree, one, was... one kid who's going to go, oh, my God, we're all going to die and run out. So they might as well get used to that. Yeah, the teacher has to be ready to deal with that sort of, <laughs> you know, thing. I'm just I'm just adding another variable to make it more realistic. Anyway, I didn't appreciate it. Um um, but the laughter I got from the class is just, I, it just every time I got it, it became addictive and I realized, oh, this is something I can, and I, I don't know when it happened, but I just, I just noticed I was able to get it out of people a bit more than I was noticing other people were able to get it out of people. So I, I started letting it become my thing. And so do you think you were then identified as being, you know, it would, if, if people who knew you then were asked to describe you, would they say that you were funny? Yeah, I think so. What made it, what was difficult, I guess, was that it, um, it became my only thing. I remember a, f- a friend once said to me, it was a horrible compliment. They said, uh, you're, um, it wasn't, I guess it wasn't a compliment, but they, someone said to me, yeah, you're, you're, you're lucky you're funny because, you know, without it, what else have you got? It, <laughs> it was like a, it wasn't, it wasn't really a compliment, to me, but, I think about it. It was, but it was like a, it was such a horrible thing to say to someone anyway. Um, but it, it did become, I had noticed it had become my, like, I'd, it's like I devalued everything else about myself. Um, it was like my one thing I could add value in. And it took me a lot of years later before I realized, oh, no, you don't have to, you're more than just that. Um, you know, you have worth outside of being funny, especially if you go to another country where you uh, can't you can't speak the language. It's like you've got no superpowers. So, um, yeah, it was, um, it, it, it did become my whole personality for a while okay so being funny did you also have an interest in funny things like were you a a fan of comedy were you consuming comedy or were you just you know making it you know when a fire drill came up at school just making when the fire drill came up basically i i didn't really love i didn't get into stand-up till until i started doing stand-up i was um i was into cartoons and transformers and ninja turtles and pop culture stuff i wasn't um I wasn't really following any comedies. I wasn't really even watching any comedies other than the ones that, you know, mum and dad had chucked on that were playing at the time. Like, um, I was trying to think, um, maybe, uh, maybe I'd catch a little bit of Monty Python. I do remember the late show. I remember the late show. I can't remember when that came out, but, um, when I was younger, the late show was a huge, not, not the David Letterman one, the, the working dog guys. Um, that that struck a chord with me. I remember really laughed my ass off at that. Yeah, I I mean that show I imagine would be incredibly pivotal to a certain sort of. There's probably a 15 year span of stand up comedians, Australian working comedians, who were affected by that show. I think. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think it was one of the first shows where we all were like, "Oh, these people!" Like you would have been younger than me. Clearly, I was. You know, more. They were a little bit older than me, but they weren't that much older than me. And suddenly, I was like, "Oh, here's all these people who are kind of." you know, look a bit like me, act a bit like me, laugh at the same things. They look like a bunch of friends who are like making all these like hilarious sketches together. It feels a bit handmade. It, it, I think it was a very pivotal show and you would have obviously been 
a, a lot younger, but I can imagine the same thing would appeal, that these adults were kind of mucking about as if they were kids. Yeah, like adults. I remember Piss Week World seeing adults push each other around in a trolley as one of the rides and just like it was, yeah, it was, that's a really good way of putting it is just adults doing things you didn't expect them to do and making you laugh. And something something about the fact that it was Australian too was, um, it was, yeah, it was was definitely a a changer for me. Okay, so you go through high school. As you said, you know, you weren't like consuming stand-up comedy. You weren't thinking about being a stand-up comedian because you didn't come to stand-up comedy until what age were you when you started doing stand-up? 25, maybe 26. Yeah, so I'm interested in the period in between then. So you get through high school. I imagine from what you're saying, high school isn't like the greatest years of your life. You're not one of those people who sits around and goes, I wish we were back at high school. They were <laughs> just, the just wearing years. the jacket for the podcast. Just <laughs> 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 jacket. And the record. <laughs> Dusting off the St. Vinny's DePaul badges and <laughs> just getting yeah. ready for this. <laughs> um, so what happens? You start study at university where do you go to university um uh, university of economics uh university of economics university of tasmania mm. and i study economics um uh i wanted to study law at first because i thought i wanted to be a lawyer because i thought that's public speaking that's fun i can do that and then after a year of law i went no this is not this is not fun um and i did teaching for a while because i thought for about two years i thought i might be a teacher because i thought that's public speaking mm. um and it's helping people, so that's cool. And then I didn't want to do teaching. And then um, then I went back and finished my economics degree just because I liked economics just because I thought it was an interesting topic. But then around the end of the degree, I started – I just dabbled. Someone in my house, a housemate was going to do stand-up and they couldn't do it because they were um, sick. So I took their spot. And um, and so I started uh, – and then I just did it once and I got addicted to it. But I um, I never thought of it as a career at that point. I just It was just a fun thing to do. Um, and I'd had a lot to drink, um, but I still at the time that I wanted to work in economics and like public policy and try and make the world better. So, okay. So let's, before we get to the comedy bit, I am very fascinated in this period of life because firstly, to get into law, you know, you've got to have done reasonably well at school. Like, I mean, you need high marks to get into law. So like, were you academically successful at school? I, I was, I think I got around 80% of a hundred and whatever the Tassie equivalent was. Um, so I was the B student. Um, but law was intro to law. So I could get into law even without, um, you know, you could say he could have any grades, but um but uh, but then I'd do something weird like I did a I did a physics course in the um in my summer break just because I really liked physics and got really high like I, I, my grades were all over the place. Um, but uh, I was probably on average a B student who um, and I I, fi- I found I could get Bs without trying very hard. Um, I could I'd always leave my assignments till the past the due date and then ask for an extension. It was um it was a weird uh but but I, i'd always pick topics i really liked like i really liked maths and i really liked science and i really liked um anything to do with policy um, i don't know why <laughs> but uh yeah i really thought that po- policy was kind of where my head would be good um the economics and being able to um like i had had topics i was passionate about but i um i would say it's like an argument um a social stance i was passionate about but i felt like with economics maybe i could lend a bit of um credibility to whatever i believed in like just i don't know something like i, I don't think we should keep refugees in offshore detention but with economics i can say why so it kind of felt like i was um 
maybe it was just brought up the fact that I used to argue with my dad a lot at Christmas, but wouldn't be able to argue back. And I'm like, oh, with an economics degree, I'll be able to change his mind. Anyway, you can't. He still believes the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's worth try. It's worth four years trying. <laughs> well, this is, I, I think, part of the problem is that often when it comes to what people believe, you know, if facts didn't get them into the belief, then facts aren't going to get them out of the belief. You know? It's like saying I'll, I'll just study, I'll do, I'll do medicine for six years, and yeah. I'll be like convince my um, anti-vax partner that right. it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, honey, I graduated. Now you listen to me? No, no okay. still not. Still the, the time, absolute right? same objections. And I came to my <laughs> yeah, opinion gotcha. with no research, no university training at all, save six years. Um, exactly. But yes, it is interesting. So economics is always one of those. Um, pursuits that I, I have a fascination around economics because I think like you I think that there are so many things that we could social issues things that that, that can be dressed up as social issues you know when it comes to um, you know whether it be homelessness or refugees or you know a, a minimum living wage all these things that are often presented as like here is an issue of the left versus the right whereas if you look at them from an economics point of view you can actually find that people on the right, you know, economic conservatives might actually have very socially progressive, you know, opinions if it is if the economics is explained to them in the right way. And I, I, I do think that that is missing from, you know, our public policy debate. So talk to me about that for a start. I, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, refugees is a, or immigration in general is, a, is a, maybe a good example of that because, um, you know, you've got people uh, who are saying we should not let's say we don't we don't want to want any more immigrants here from anywhere but they might be saying that from a position of our um public infrastructure is crumbling we have our we have too much congestion on the roads there's not enough parks for people um there's too much pollution from the cars like it could come from a point of view of like we just don't have the infrastructure to support any more people right now let's fix this before we bring any more uh, anyone else in which is a legitimate concern that's coming from a very different place than someone who just doesn't like um Chinese people, you know, it's just, it's, it's, um, you know, and there are, you know, there is a certain amount of, there is a certain capacity that each state can handle within an inner city before the, um, uh, you know, the public transport infrastructure or the the road condition gets uh, unbearable. So there is, you know, these are, these are legitimate concerns that need to be answered um, in an immigration debate that, you know, maybe on Facebook when someone says, no, no, we can't afford to take anyone else on right now, doesn't quite come across. <laughs> um, you know? So it's, um, it's, 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 it's important. It's, but I agree when you talk about it just from the economics point of view, like there is, there is quite literally a, there's a point at which Australia can't fit on any more cars on the road. Like there's just a point where we will be shoulder to shoulder with cars. We physically cannot fit another car on the road. We're not at that point, but there is a point that that would happen, which means there is a point where we have to say, okay, if anyone else comes in after this point, we can't have them driving. And so we have to think of what, how, how they get around or where we put them. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot to say that, um, you know, what if you had people, you could make an economic argument to say, um, we're going to allow immigrants in, but we're only going to allow them to live in the rural areas um, where we need, where we're finding the populations aren't, um, you know, they're, they're sparse. They could use some more people to, to um, you know, boost the local economy. Um, and we're not going to allow them to move to the inner city. Like there, there's, a, you know, and you could make that argument, um but it's yeah, it's it's a tricky one. It's 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 um, it's in a, there's a lot of uh, you know, it's wrapped in a lot of other stuff. But um, it's kind of why I love it, I guess, is because it's um, you know, it does make you think from issues in a bit more um, 
bit more practically, I guess, and a, a bit less emotionally. Yeah, I mean, the refugee one, without us wanting to take the whole podcast <laughs> talking about this, I think it is such a great example of it because we are spending millions of dollars locking people in cages, you know, offshore. And I agree with you. There are rational arguments that people have about levels of immigration or levels of refugees that are not to do with race or racism or any of the things they might be labelled if they worry about those things. But we've also seen very successful case studies of rural areas. As someone who grew up in the country and has seen how country towns have been dying over the years and have seen success stories of if we took the money we were spending locking those people up overseas and invested that same amount of money into these local communities to put in place the structures and infrastructure and whatever for these you know, people to be able to integrate in this community and grow as part of the community and have this new life as part of these communities, then I think you can have a different argument and a different discussion around that topic than you can with somebody just going, I want to shut the borders and somebody else calling them a racist. Oh, I agree. It's um, And yeah, the, the, the research is, um, I mean, even, even, even the research around there was some research around refugees coming in that got, um, you know, even where they were paid, uh, where they were just put into the community without um, the community getting any support, and they were just paid a, um, you know, like a like a job seeker payment. Even even in those scenarios, over time, the refugees still contributed more to society than they were given it, than they were handed out. And you know, the study was finding a lot of it came down to just gratitude. They were. You know they and they they wanted to work. They wanted to be part of the community. But yeah, so the st- study after study was sh- sh- like just from the pure data point of view, bringing refugees in is a massive win for the country. Um, just to be clear on that. Um, yeah, but also we have to be very careful about like how you bring someone in. Like if you bring someone in and then yeah. just dump them all in a suburb in the city without any support or infrastructure or way to integrate, you actually do create like issues with that community because you haven't given them the support and whatever. Like when we when we talk about this idea of oh, people come over here and they can't get a job, people come over here, they can't speak the language. Well, if we're going to invite people to come over here and think they can contribute to the country, actually what we've got to do is, you know, make sure that we can help them speak the language or be able to get a job or have the support they need once they get here. That is actually part of it. And I mean, I'm very passionate about the idea of the country thing. I understand that it's not going to be a solution for everybody and not everybody wants to live in the country. But I think a lot of people, particularly in refugee circumstances, considering where they're coming from and if their other option is being locked up on an island somewhere, the idea of being able to go to a country community and become part of that community, help that community grow, is super appealing. Because in a way, country communities uh, integrate more with new people than city communities. In the city, you can find your own and stay with your own. Whereas in the country town, I've seen it a million times. If you have some, you know, Sudanese kid who comes to, you know, Hayfield Primary and he's like six foot three, I guarantee you the captain of the football team, the netball team and the whatever around at that family's door, like day one going, we've got to sign your kid up to come and play, you know, football <laughs> or netball or basketball. Like people are immediately integrated into those communities because they are smaller communities and they have no other choice. And we've been seeing in Australia now when, what, what was the family recently where the um the town came out to try and um keep them there uh, even though the government wanted to ship them back it was uh it's bonkers um but to, economically even if we didn't just keep refugees overseas even if we just brought them to australia and treated them just as terribly here it would yep. still make more economic sense because then you'd be employing you'd just be employing australians to be horrible to them <laughs> like it's just it just makes no sense keeping them overseas it just doesn't make any yeah. sense at all okay so but i like i like the idea of the economic approach but also 
the other then let's talk about the flip side of economics then which is that do we look at the world sometimes i feel like perhaps we look at the world too much through the prism of economics and economics can be so easily I mean, there have been a lot of economic theories over the years that political, you know, theories have been built around that the economic theories have later on been proved to be demonstrably false. I'm thinking particularly of, you know, trickle-down economics and the idea that if you... Oh, trickle-downs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a... Anyone who says trickle-down, it's, um, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the closest I get to punching someone is when someone says trickle-down economics. So I'm like, <laughs> it's just like, no. Um yeah, you're right. It's um, it's it's a weapon you can use, uh, you know, just as we could use it to just to, to help. Um, you know, even though you know morally, you know, we should just if someone's in a country where they're not safe, they should be allowed here. You could just you can use economics as a weapon to try and um, you know, keep people out or, or use it in a bad way. So it's it's yeah, it is a it's a um. It's a double. I, I was trying to think of another analogy that wasn't double-edged sword, but it is a, a double-edged sword. Uh, so you've been talking about economics, obviously, on the weekly. Uh, you know, and I've I've been really fascinated by your sort of re-embrace of, you know, your economics background to try to facilitate comedy out of that. Was it something that you, you know, you were just like, I really want to do this? Was it just that you were looking to do a segment and you were going through a whole bunch of ideas? Like, what? where were you in your life that you suddenly were like, no, I'm going to start talking about economics in a you know comedic way as part of this show it was partly um uh, i i don't know i don't embarrass you by saying this but it was do you remember when you and i shared that room do you remember i can't remember now um it was it was you were doing a spot you, you it was it was was it the comedy theater okay yeah sure i, I can't remember but anyway I, I remember listening to you do a stand-up and you were um you were talking about a lot of stuff, which was sort of it was that sort of people were laughing, but people were learning as well. And I'm like, oh, why don't I do any of that? Any of those jokes? Um, uh, and it, it was you, and there were a few other comedians I was following at the time who were just sort of making people laugh, while also uh, Tom Ballard was doing it as well. It was that sort of it was sort of people making people laugh while changing hearts and minds that I that I've always loved, and but I had never done myself. Um, so I started to think about ways I could maybe incorporate economics into my jokes but then when the weekly opportunity popped up i think it, i think it might have been our manager kev actually who suggested it but um where I, I sat down with charlie and chris who's one of the producers there and just said okay if i at the time negative gearing was a big deal they were deciding whether negative gearing was um i think it was going to be part of the liberal labor election fight it was labor we're going to get we're going to phase out negative gearing to a certain extent i'm like okay if i can make negative gearing funny then maybe i can make economics funny because negative gearing is pretty dry um and so uh once i felt like i could once i did a sketch on negative gearing i'm like okay I can, if i can make a sketch about negative gearing, i can make a sketch about anything and it just sort of went from there um what do you think about the priori- prioritization of economics in our society sorry I'm, this is not all going to be about economics but this is an interesting area to me because i oh man i'll talk about <laughs> economics till the cows come home well this is good for both of us then because i grew up on a farm so i know when the cows come home so between us we've got this entire yeah, conversation yeah. covered but i can, can you can you quickly explain that saying will is that a is that because the cows go out to pasture and then they come back? Is that what that means? I mean, it's actually, I'm not sure what the origins of the um, the, the expression are, but yeah, the cows do have regular patterns so that they would, yeah, they would, I imagine, I've always imagined it was a milking thing, 
like until the cows come home, it would be post-milking. Because generally what happens is your cows are out in a paddock and then sort of in the afternoon, say 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they need to be milked for the second time of the day. They got milked sort of 12 hours earlier in the day as well. And so um, normally what happens is a dog will go and round them up. But they, the cows know. They sort of have a pattern, you know, so they, they know. So they just after a while they just start coming in anyway. Exactly. Just, you, you just got to get one or two yeah. of them started and then the rest of them are like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand what's going on here. They go to the dairy and then they would go back home. And so that's what I always assume, but I don't know what the origins of the actual expression are. So, but um, I think that the role of economics and how much we value or not value economics and the economy, I guess, like we talk about the economy as if it is the main thing in our society. And particularly in the last, you know, 18 months, two years as we've been going through, you know, what we've been going through in the world, there has been a real battle between traditionally what we always go, well, this is bad for the economy. We can't be doing this. This is bad for the economy versus what is good for people. And there has been a readjustment of that because a lot of the tension at the heart of, you know, whether we lock down our community for safety versus whatever economic effect that will have. It's been an incredible time for the debate between those two things and what the role of the economy is. So what are your thoughts? There's 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 an airborne virus that kills people. Yes, but what about the gross domestic product? (laughs) It's going to go down, health. Uh, yeah, it's been interesting. It's been, um, it, it's. I, I think for me, it's. Um, it, it's. We've got a sort of a, a, a government in power right now that um, you know traditionally has said small government's the way to go. Um, you know, let, let the market take care of things and you know try not to and just step back and let it happen. Um, even though they, you know, there's many examples where they don't do that. Um, but that doesn't really work in a global pandemic. You need you need big government. You need government to step in and support people. You know, like things like JobKeeper. And um, I, I feel like there's a. It, it, it comes back to the debate about whether, um, uh, and not to make the whole podcast about modern monetary theory, but whether the whether government debt is something that has to be paid back or not. Um, uh, and just for anyone who doesn't. So basically, modern monetary theory states that governments with a sovereign currency that have that can issue their own currency can um, have no constraints on spending. They can spend an unlimited amount of money. The thing they do have to worry about is inflation. So in other words, if they spend too much money, the economy will overheat. Um, so uh, if that's the case, that means the government could hypothetically continue to pay JobKeeper. And as long as inflation didn't become an issue, there'd be no issue just continuing to, to put out JobKeeper. Um there's no reason to stop it. And I think right now that's kind of the where we're at because there are some countries like Australia where they're like, okay, we've got to rein in spending. We, can, we can't keep spending because of the debt. Um, whereas uh, so, and as, you know, citizens, we go, okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, if we, if we spend more than we've, we've got, we have debt. Whereas, in, whereas a currency issuer like Australia is, um, there's a lot of economic debate at the moment whether whether that's actually the case. And um, for example, Australia's debt to GDP ratio is around 40%, um, whereas in Japan it's around 250%. So what you'd expect to see in Japan is inflation, but they're not. Australia, Japan's had one of the lowest inflation rates in the world for years, um, and it's not showing any sign of increasing. So it's um, the, you're starting to see in Japan they're embracing um, that sort of unlimited spending within a um, within the constraint of inflation um, and whether we see that. And we've already, even in Australia, the, the intergenerational report, I think it's called, came out recently and they said we'll have a deficit until the 2060 or something like that. So it's um, even even this government's sort of embraced it 
you know, the deficit isn't the uh, something that politicians can throw around as a weapon like they used to. It's just sort of, you know, we're going to be in deficit. And deficit is not a debt. It's, it's just a, a record of how much money Australia government has put into the economy rather than taking it out. So a surplus just means they take in more, they take out more money than they put in. And a deficit means they put in more money than they take out. That's all it is. It's not a, it's not a debt like we have. Um, anyway, sorry, that was a long rant. No, but <laughs> it's an important. It, I don't, I, I don't think that is a distinction that people understand because people, you know, quite rightly mock Pauline Hanson for a whole bunch of things. But the one that they really went hard on it was the idea that we should print more money, and in a way, yeah. she wasn't a million miles away from what the truth is right like i mean yeah, she was in the exactly. she was in the ballpark of perhaps she didn't quite fully understand what you're talking about but there is a proper economics theory uh, we always describe we so often get in the trouble i think in this society is they compare the australian like federal budget to a household budget and when you do it yeah, in those terms yeah. then when you talk about the idea of us having all this debt that we have to pay off it does feel like it is, you know, this debt that is burning a hole, we're going to be paying it off for generations. But that modern monetary policy has a different look at that. And as you're saying, the risk always used to be if you put more money in, it is that hyperinflation of a Zimbabwe or whatever, suddenly your can of Coke's going to cost you $1,000 and it's all out of yep. control. But there are modern day examples now of how that does not need to be the case. And this glorification of surpluses over the years has always been one of the most frustrating things to me, where people are like, isn't it great we had this big budget surplus? Where I'm like, hang on, that just means the government took more money from us than they are spending on us. That is never something exactly. to me. Why are we celebrating it's that? The, yeah, it's the worst thing. Yeah. You never want a surplus if you can avoid it. It was, uh, yeah, and your Pauline is, uh, yeah, I don't normally agree with Pauline, but in this case I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there, there really was a, like uh, the Liberal Party before the coronavirus hit was selling a mug saying we're back in black. Mm -hmm. Like there was, they were, they were really patting themselves on the back for having a surplus. And it just, I mean, if you if you just think about it from the point of view of imagine if you had a printer that made money, which we do in Australia. Imagine if you had that printer, would you be really worried about paying a few credit cards? Or like it just doesn't it, it doesn't make any sense to be a currency issuer and also have a debt because I mean the Reserve Bank is a great example when the Reserve Bank bought government bonds to fund a current deficit they issued themselves money they just changed numbers on the screen do you think we're going to have to pay that back are we going to have to pay that is the Reserve Bank going to say at some point okay you have to pay us all that money back now that we just put on our computer screen otherwise we're going to kick you out of Australia we're going to mortgage Australia like it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense it's just a it's a real um, and slowly. Slowly, you're seeing parts of the world embrace it, but um, it's it's still a bit of a slow. Even though Australia's kind of embraced it with that intergenerational port, the idea that deficits aren't bad, it's still a bit of a slow moving. And it's also hard from a politicians' point of view to say we're not spending money here because we choose to, as opposed to we can't afford to. Like it's um, it's a it's a it really does change the political debate mm -hmm. because then all of a sudden, when someone says aged care is underfunded, they're like, you know. The genuine question is why, and the politicians can't say, "Oh, we can't afford to spend all the money on aged care." It's just like, "Well, you can." Mm. So why is it still underfunded? Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's it's. It, I'm really curious to see where the, where the, the debate goes from here because it's taken a global pandemic to really kick it into gear. Even though you know this theory's been around for years, um, 
Well, I've been in, I'm very fascinated by the jobs numbers. Now, jobs numbers aren't always a perfect representation of what's going on in the country, and there is massive levels of underemployment, and you know things can be manipulated. But in a general sense, considering we have been through a global pandemic and so many people have lost periods of work, the jobs numbers in Australia are particularly strong. And partly that is just because for a period of time, the government paid a whole lot of businesses and employers to make sure that they could keep employing people and that's something we could keep doing like there's no reason that that needs to stop if we want this idea that people can have jobs surely the government can be putting money into creating those jobs yeah it could um it absolutely could and the job figure is always a bit weird because from memory the people who you have to actually actively be looking for a job to be counted so if you're unemployed but stop looking for a job they just don't count you anymore so there's that, that figure gets that figure can be deceptive, but uh, yeah, there's absolutely no reason the government couldn't keep spending money. Like, there's no, there was no, there's no, there was no reason to stop JobKeeper. It could have just kept going with it. It would have made sense, especially as we go into more of these lockdowns. And I believe they've got some sort of emergency payment coming through now. But um, yeah, it just it would have been a no. It's it's kind of a no brainer to keep that going. Um, What's your take on universal basic? Um income like some sort of you know ubi because like i've heard a lot of really interesting debates from people who um you know like who i respect on on both sides of this you know some people say it'd be great if we have like some sort of universal wage that everybody is eligible for there are other people who talk about how that just entrenches you know people in a certain demographic of society and there is no i mean it might in itself lead to inflation if you're paying everybody this sort of money then you know it's like the first home buyer grant there's a lot of arguments around the idea that if you give you know people ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars as a bonus to buy their first house it just puts every first home up ten or twenty thousand dollars like you don't actually get that benefit what's your take on some sort of universal basic wage for people um well yeah the, i mean just to go back to the the first home buyers grant um the, the, i mean as far as the housing market goes you either have to um reduce the demand for houses so you have to like thanos snap half the population out of existence mm. or you have to increase the <laughs> supply of houses but if you're just propping up any buyer in the market all you're doing is inflating the price of houses um so first home buyers grant um you know is a way of upping the price of houses. Um, it's just putting someone at an auction that wouldn't otherwise be able to be there. So it is inflationary. Um, there are other ways to do it. Anyway, uh, so back to, um, uh, I'm so sorry, we, we were talking about universal basic income. Yes, yeah. um, I I think, um, I, my, my, I haven't honestly done a lot of research on universal basic income. So my understanding is basically just that everyone gets paid a set wage, mm. no matter what their status in life is. Everyone gets a, a minimum amount of money from the government. Um, so as far as inflationary pressures go, it just depends on where the economy is at if, if, um, and how much the, the amount is. If, let's, let's assume there's no inflationary pressure from it, that the economy can absolutely handle that amount of um, extra demand for goods and services and that supply is not an issue. Um, then in Australia, we've got a system where if you're, you're paid a wage, you're paid a wage if you're unemployed, you're paid a, a wage to not die by the government, um, and then you're incentivized to get a job um, in the hope of earning more than that wage. Um, and um, it's means tested and it can be hard to get straight away. Uh, whereas if you, everyone was on universal basic income, uh, you'd just be, you know, if you lost your job, you'd still be paid this small amount. Look, I, I don't think it's a bad idea because, you know, it does guarantee that employers, let's say unions don't exist 
if you if people are paid a certain wage already, it means that as an employer, your job has to be good enough to incentivize someone to want to work for you. So your your employee benefits, the way you treat your staff, they all have to be good enough that someone who's paid being paid an income already by the government wants to work for you instead of getting paid this in addition to getting paid this wage. Um, like that extra money has to be worth it. Yeah, I don't know to be honest. We've kind of got a. I don't know if you'd call job seeker universal income light and that you're guaranteed a wage if you're not working and whether there's benefit to paying everyone a universal basic income. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Or whether there's an, whether there's a certain economy or a certain country where universal basic income would be better than a means tested income. Yeah. I, I honestly, well, I haven't done enough research on it. I don't, I don't know. Um, okay. So let's get off for economics. We've talked about economics. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find all that very fascinating because oh, I, we, yeah, I love it. I, economics we often think of as as soon as somebody hears the term economics, it feels very dry. It feels you know the economists all you know sitting around talking to each other, and it's not about us. But so much of it is just about us. How we live every day is yeah. what economics is. Like you know the basic economics of I think you know I know us as like people who work in the arts like we had a very different idea of what the economy of the arts was two years ago to what our understanding of the economy of the arts is now. Like I, for the last 25 years, have always kept doing stand-up because I would always say to people, I said, well, if everything else falls apart, I can always just still just do stand-up and earn a living. And then suddenly for the last you know year and a half, <laughs> we've lived in a world where that is just one of the most ridiculous propositions that anybody has ever put forward. So... What's um, talk to me about your last year and a half and how you've, you know, has it changed your view of like the career that you've chosen, the world that you live in? I know that you have obviously still been able to, to work in you know some capacities making you know TV and some stuff like that. But what is your general impression of uh, you know how the last year and a half has changed us? Um, yeah, it was, you know, because we we take such a risk to do what we do. Um, you know, you like I quit my job and I um, really tried to, hard to make it in the arts. And then if you happen to be lucky enough to break through, then it's something that gets stopped by a airborne virus. <laughs> like I, I thought, <laughs> I thought the reason I'd stop doing stand-up is because I was, I was shit at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't think it would be because of some global pandemic. Um, so yeah, it's been weird. I, I, I had. I mean, yeah, I, I was one of the lucky ones who had who had work, at, um, but uh, you know, now coming to the end of uh, um, Rosehaven, and uh, you know, it, it is a bit weird. Like, I don't know. I, I always sort of had plans to, you know, I wanted to move to America for a bit, maybe, and just try my luck over there, or um, I don't know, travel around, or see if I could maybe go to another country and learn another language and try and do stand up in another language. I just had all these little goals that I wanted to try and have a crack at. And now I'm thinking more about, oh, one thing it has made me do is what do I really find joy in, no matter where I am? Um, and how can I continue to try and make a living off that? And I think for me, that's probably writing. I really do enjoy writing. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's me just trying to justify an occupation that's um, that I can still do because I can't 
talk in front of people. It's yeah, I don't. I'm still. So when you say you do, when you say you love writing, what is it about writing that you love? I think you and I have actually had this conversation previously in real life around the fact that you've said that you like writing, whereas I find writing for someone who has chosen a career that involves so much writing like I mean I'm a trained journalist which clearly was going to be about writing and then the rest of my life has been nothing but writing I find writing a really unpleasant and painful (laughs) process that like is only worthy of I, I think I read a quote once that said I hate writing I love having written and I feel that definitely sums up what my attitude to writing is I enjoy at the end of having written something that I've written something, but the process of writing, I do not find fun at all. Do you find the actual process fun? Um, not writing stand-up. Like I have to force myself to write stand-up, um, but I really do find writing like a show idea or a movie idea fun. Like, cause it's just, it's just potential. Like it's just pure potential. And I really find that exciting. Um, it's just in the in the uh, just hearing you say that. Well, we've talked about it before. I I I sort of in the lead up to this, just had sort of run through my mind our interactions. And I think the last time I talked to you properly was at an airport, and I asked you something like, um, "I th- I have a bad bad habit of asking you really deep questions right as you're going to go somewhere." <laughs> I think you were. I think we're at the airport. We both had to catch a flight or something. Yeah. And I'm, and I was asking you, um, like, Will, have you ever thought about narrative and what would you want to do? <laughs> it's just like, he's, mate, he's trying to weigh his bags. <laughs> anyway, I apologise for that. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you more, more bland, th- uh, just, just more high level stuff next time. I remember that exact interaction, <laughs> and that is ex- like some people listening might think you're exaggerating how that went down, but that is exactly the interaction. Was, we were, yeah. we ran into each other at an airport. We were both going in different directions. I was about to check into a plane. <laughs> And you asked me if I was ever interested in writing something narrative and what would it be? I'm so sorry, mate. I don't know why. I don't know what it is about you that makes me want to ask a deep question straight away. Um, I will uh, stick to the weather. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've, I've forgotten my train of thought now. But um, uh, so yeah, writing, the, the joy oh, the, of writing. Yeah, the, 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 it's, it's like, um, it's like as close as I can get to having a superpower where I can make fireworks appear in my hand. Like it's got that level of excitement about it to me is that um, that infinite possibility is um, that you can create a world uh, is really exciting to me. But I don't have it with stand-up. I don't, I don't know why. Huh? Right. Do you have a favourite thing you've ever written? Like is there a particular scene, a particular joke, a particular – it doesn't – I mean it could be anything that you've written. It could be like a – you know, but is there something in particular that you think, oh, gee, that was, I really think that was a good piece of writing? I've got a couple of things on my laptop that the world hasn't seen yet where it's like a scene in a horror movie where I'm just like, oh, that's a good scene, but I've got no idea what to wrap around it um, or just an interesting concept. Um, but, uh, yeah, I I think um, so So not, not really. I have favourite scenes that I like to write, which is usually some sort of horror element. Um like I think of, I, I seem to know a lot of ways to scare myself, um, but uh, yeah, not yet. No, most of the stuff I've written, I haven't shown anyone. Um, like what I have shown people is like a small <laughs> section of how my brain works. So I'm hoping to, uh, so the, the pandemic's definitely made me dig a bit deeper into that sort of stuff. 
Okay, well that's good. So scary, like I mean, fear and comedy, scare, you know, scary things and comedy often go yeah hand in hand. They seem to be often you know two different reactions to the same event. Like where are they linked in your world? Have you had a love of like horror films, of scary films, of that sort of you know? Did you read like Stephen King books as you were growing up? Like where does this like does or is it? connected to your sense of humor or is it uh, does it come from your personality where do you think that that love of that sort of horror I, I, comes I, from i could never do rides at the show i couldn't i was finding it i get sick i couldn't do anything that put me upside down but horror i felt like i was going on a roller coaster but i was still safe at home so i was getting thrills without the physical danger um the and the first film that really scared me was it by stephen king the Pennywise, the clown that eats children. And as a child at the time, I didn't want to be eaten by a clown. So it was um, perfectly targeted to me. Um, and uh, I, but it stuck with me for so long. I just got fascinated by that, a piece of pop culture that Stephen King wrote, probably on cocaine um, at the time. During those, he was, um, but it just, it's just stuck with me. It stuck with me more than anything else I'd ever watched. Um, and I, uh, and then when I saw Ghostbusters and I was scared by like the library ghost or the uh, the train in Ghostbusters 2, I was really scared, but then I was laughing as well. It was like, oh, wow, these two extreme emotions. It sort of became um, that I, I, I couldn't, that became the piece of entertainment that, that sort of affected me the most. It's like nothing else gives me this much, gets this much out of me. Okay. So I'm interested in that. I'm interested in fear, like and how it connects to your life. So, are you? Do you consider yourself to be a fearful person? Like, are you, on a day-to-day basis, are you afraid of things? Just uh, looking over at the drawer that has my anxiety medication in it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I do get pretty scared. I, 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 until comedy, and deciding to do comedy for a living, most of my decisions are made out of um, fear of avoiding pain, as opposed to trying to get into some sort of pleasurable state. Um, you know, it was always safety and security and trying to think of what would make me the most safe as opposed to trying to think of what would bring me the most joy. Um, so fear definitely played a large part in my psyche um, until quite late in life. Um, and now I find I can enjoy horror movies because I I do feel a bit more secure in myself. So now I can sort of, now scaring is kind of, I, it's almost like I have control over this emotion that is, um, I don't know, it's, I, I like it because of what you were saying before, it does feel so close to comedy um, and often you'll see. I, I remember when I was in, um, I, you know, in Black Saturday uh, in Melbourne, I was I was in Alexandra, um, mm-hmm. uh, which for anyone who doesn't know, I think it's about three hours out of the city. Um, it's, uh, and we were, we were um, hearing about the fires um, all around us and they, 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 they quickly bulldozed a, a sort of a, a dirt dam around Alexander to try and block the fires. And I'd never been in a situation where I thought I'm going to die. Um, um, but there was smoke everywhere and it was really hard to breathe. And there was um, people who were being evacuated from other towns who were telling us how bad it was. And um, I remember we were, we were going for a walk to try and the whole town was sort of wandering around trying to keep an eye out for spot fires. And um, we were going past a metal fence. And, um, and, and so I grabbed the metal fence and started shaking it and saying, look, it's yeah, I'm Sarah Connor. Because remember that scene in Terminator 2 when Sarah Connor shook, shook the fence and then she <laughs> burst in the, in the nuclear explosion? Yeah. Anyway, um, 
that was for a brief period of 48 hours where I felt like safe again, like everything was fine um, because I was making jokes. Um, mm. And so comedy did feel like it was kind of in that period. And I, I'm, I'm, this is a very short story for a very big thing that happened to me, but um, that, that the power of comedy to um, overpower any emotion, like laughter to overpower any emotion, um, I don't make me feel like I could sort of embrace horror a bit more because I knew how to deal with it. Uh, so I'm very interested in then you coming to stand up because I mean I don't think it's a big secret that anxiety has played a part in your life and it's obviously you know in in many ways integral to a persona that people have seen from you. You know there is has been you know and there was a nervousness to when you burst onto the scene you weren't like a you know and he's a good friend of yours so um, you'll know what I mean when I say this but you didn't have Tommy Little confidence no you (laughs) you know you definitely you looked like somebody who'd almost accidentally found their way on stage and now that we're hearing the story it does feel like you accidentally found your way on stage you know like literally one of your friends pulls out and firstly the idea that if you're pulling out of a gig, you have to find your own replacement and you can just replace yourself with somebody who's already around your house is a brave idea. But, <laughs> I, but I, where where was this gig? Talk me through like that first like stand up moment. So it was it was um my my memory was a bit incorrect. So basically, so the, uh, my, my housemate Simon applied for raw comedy and we went along to support him, but then someone else who was supposed to compete that night didn't show up. Oh, okay. So yeah. I took their spot. So apologies, I got, I got my mm-hmm. history wrong. Um, uh, so I was quite drunk and so I got up and just for two and a half minutes talked about how funny I was going to be. So I got everyone in the crowd to put down their drinks, mm-hmm. um, asked anyone if they had <laughs> asthma, I think, at one point. I was very, like, I just really right. hyped it up and then just didn't have any jokes after that. And I remember a year later a guy came up to me and said, I remember that gig you did. That was really disappointing. You got us all so excited, <laughs> but um, and then you didn't do anything. And I'm like, yeah, but it, but but I re- but it did make me realize. But I feel like the initial, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the initial bit would have. Yeah, been that funny. was funny. It was. I feel like the funny. idea of you telling people that you were going to be really funny. That to me, I can see that. You know, coming out just like really going, put down yeah. your drinks. This is going to be great. Like anyone with a medical condition, like this is. You know, you got to prepare yourself. That to me is funny. That's like a funny idea. It was idea. two and a half minutes of that, but yeah. there was still two and a half minutes no to fill. <laughs> and it was a, it was a real crash and burn. Um, but it did make me realise that I could make people laugh uh, who I didn't know. Um, so that was, um, it was enough. It was enough of a hook to, from that one day, never having thought about stand-up in my life to never stopping it since. Were you able to do it sober? Because, I mean, obviously you're talking about, you know, someone who, I mean, you've always had a passion for public speaking. You talked about law and these sort of things as being areas where you could do public speaking. So it strikes me that you weren't necessarily worried about getting up in front of people and speaking, but you were drunk. You did it the first time drunk. Were you able to do it sober or did you feel like at that stage that you would have to be, you'd have to have a few drinks to get up on stage in front of people? No, I had to have a few drinks to be on stage. I had to have maybe two or three before I could get up. And it took a while. It took maybe a couple of years maybe before I was able to do it sober consistently without. And even even later on in, in life, like I was, uh, even when I was in doing Adelaide Fringe and I was um, starting to perform in front of bigger crowds, uh, without the alcohol, I'd start to get panic attacks. Um, 
I uh, I'd start to hyperventilate before I was going on or, or when I was on stage. It took a it it, it was only it took me about ten years of doing it before I could get on stage sober and not have nerves. Or you know there'd be butterflies, but there were more excited nerves rather than crippling anxiety that it wasn't going to go well. And it's it took a really long time. How did you? Um, I mean, I and I understand that. In fact. To be honest, like I think I've yeah relied on alcohol as being a crutch for performance for you know decades longer than I should have, and you know this period of time you know particularly with COVID where you get an opportunity to have a fresh start. Like the few gigs that I have been doing, I've been trying to do them like sober because it feels less like a there's been a break anyway, so it feels like you can start back fresh with a different approach to it i didn't want to just go back in going all right i'm going to drink like you know three or four beers you know beforehand and a couple of beers on stage because that's how i always did it i feel like that's not sustainable to me but i i realized that it, it i mean it was a big component of me you know getting up there on stage regardless of how you know much i might have presented to people that i was not anxious about the experience of getting up there on stage that if i took away you know those those support mechanisms that i had around it that were making me feel comfortable then something i was like oh man i am really up here by myself (laughs) with nothing more than these nothing more than these ideas Did, did you have the same level of nerves when you would host something on tv though were you able to um like did you have the same level of uh, fear that you'd have with stand-up i've always had an anxiety i think that this is getting better as i've got older which is that like i really had that idea that whether things were going to work or not work were entirely reliant on me whereas i've come to a greater understanding like as i've got older that you are a part of a really big team and You know, it is not all on your shoulders and often even the idea that you carry all that weight on your shoulders is not good for the other people who are, you know, involved in in what it is that you are doing. So I never had nerves about my own personal performance. I think partly the TV thing is, and I've look, I've had this conversation with people before and it always, I I don't mean it to sound disrespectful. Like I honestly don't because... I really have enjoyed the opportunities that I've got to do TV and I've been very proud of some of the things that I've made on TV. But TV is just not my passion. Like I love TV to watch, but like I've never considered myself to be a TV performer. Like I've never considered myself to be a TV person really. I mean, I've only really done a couple of shows. It it just happens to be that those shows have lasted for a while. But like, I mean, I've done, I did Glasshouse and I've done Gruen. Like they're really only the two shows, the only two shows that I've done in my career and I'm about to do a a new show. So that'll be like the third show that I've done in like 20 years of doing television. They're they're both both really good long-running shows. Yeah, which makes it it feel like I'm more of a TV person than I am. Like that's that's a bigger achievement than someone says, oh, I've done done 20 shows and they all failed really quickly. (laughs) Like, so you don't understand. That's actually a really big deal, Will. I know what you mean and I I understand that concept. But obviously when you've had a successful show, particularly like a show like Gruen, which has been a super successful show, it – it, you are offered a whole bunch of other opportunities. I could have done another 10 things if I had wanted to, but it's just never particularly been my passion. I've always loved doing stand-up and, and doing other things. And so I think my lack of nerves around television comes from that I don't place the same stakes on television as I place on my stand-up. Like I want, I've always wanted to be a great stand-up and I think it's one of the great 
frustrations of my life that I know that I probably never will be. Like, I am a very competent stand-up and I aspire to be... What are you talking no, no. about? You've, you've, you're, you you can fill a thousand people in a... Like, I didn't realise you could, could... Will, you're a really but, good stand-up. That's why people well, wouldn't show up. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I get that people like my stand-up, but I just... I, I am super aware of all the flaws of my stand-up in a way that I am not aware of or don't care as much about my flaws as a television presenter. I think that's what it is, you know. So you're, you're more critical of your stand-up than you are of your... Absolutely more critical. Yeah. I am so much more invested in it. I live and die a lot more on it. Like I can, if I did it, like I don't, I've never, I think I've seen two episodes of Gruen in 13 years. Like I don't watch the show back. I don't really kind of like, I do it and I don't really think about it as being part of my life, you know, um... Whereas, like, stand-up, I'm, I'm still thinking about a shitty gig I did five years ago. Like, <laughs> I'll just be it, it, I'll be having a real nice time and that shitty gig from five years ago will just pop into my head and ruin the rest of my day. I'm a failure. <laughs> um, Ed, Ed Cavley said to me once, um, you shouldn't dismiss what you find easy. Um, and I do think with stand-up sometimes that, um, you know, you're obviously very good. Um, at thinking of TV formats and hosting, you're obviously very good at that. Um, but because it probably does come a bit easier to you, or it does feel a bit more natural, that um, you know maybe you don't appreciate how how much of a skill it is. Um, uh, but it is it's it's clearly something you're good at. But yeah, it's tricky because uh, is part of the reason you're so good at it is because you don't have the same level of scrutiny that you do around stand up. So you are able to flow and be spontaneous and be what the show needs because you're, as you say, I'm not, I'm not as invested here as I am in this area. Um, I wonder if that's part of the. Yeah, I think so. I think that, that, I mean, I think that you're right. Like sometimes you can care so much about something it's detrimental to it. I think that is a really good observation. Like sometimes the best thing that you can do is at least at the very least kind of taken a bit of it more of an attitude of, that I don't care yeah, how this goes. That, that's wrong. That, not that I don't care, but that I know that being too worried about it will actually get in the way of it being good or effective. Yeah. Um, what did Tom Gleason tell me once before a gig? Uh, he said, uh, he said, oh, I was thinking, I used to, I used to be, I used to be nervous before I did stand up, but then I thought, how much better would it be if I wasn't? And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. He, he didn't give me any idea as to how he managed to get to that level. <laughs> But he did. But he did give me the. It's, it's like showing you the answer without giving you any of the uh, workings out. But um, I mean, he was right. Uh, so I asked people on this show uh, if they have a life philosophy of any kind. You told me before we started that you don't really have a life philosophy, but you've thought one for the <laughs> thought of one for the purposes of this podcast. Right, right down the I appreciate. I think that um, life's about chasing joy. But it's I I'm immediately turning that down as I'm thinking about it because what if you get joy from um, kicking kicking puppies or something? Um, but I I think I think I think life's about trying to seek out love um, and be loved. Does that sound lame? I'm, I, I'm I'm I my I think that when we die, nothing happens. We just cease to exist like before we were born, which means we get one shot on Earth and whatever chemical reactions are happening in my body to make me feel love. That's the best I feel is when I'm sort of in a state of love for Earth, fellow humans, whatever you want to call it. So I feel like that's kind of, at least in my purpose, is to try and make um, 
feel and put out love on earth. And I'm, I fail at that miserably many times, but um, that's kind of my philosophy at the moment. What's um, more important to you, to be loved or to be good at loving things? I think to be good at loving things, right? Because if you, to, to, to give love, you have to feel love. And so to feel, so to getting love from someone is great, but it's still an external stimulus that you have to absorb. And, you know, what someone's, whatever your criteria is for someone loving you could be different than what they actually do. Even though they could love you inside, what whatever their actions are, you might say, that's not what someone who loves me would do. So I feel like it has to come from you, right? Um, but it's, yeah, I, I, I do, I do wonder sometimes that, um, you know, just because I personally, you know, have a feel like, you know, I want to do, I, I, I want to do the right. I used to be very religious growing up and now I'm not. Now I think it's just one abyss of space. I find it like more powerful to do something good for someone knowing that there's probably no reward for it. I don't know when I was, whereas when I was religious, I used to just do it because I thought that might get me into heaven. Um, but then I wonder, you know, is that just because whatever chemical reaction in my brain is making me feel love? So I'm doing, I, I'm still sort of selfish. I don't know. This is a real, going off on, the, on a real tangent here. But um, No, I, I, I don't mind the idea of like selfishness when it comes to service of others. I think it's actually undervalued as something that we, like it feels good to help other people. It feels good to do things for, like so often in our society, yeah. like it's almost as if if we get pleasure out of it, then it's not as worthy, you know, like whereas often I think that we could actually improve society so much by pointing out, uh, you know what, you don't even have to care for the people that you're looking after. You'll actually just feel really good that you are doing it and in return they'll still get looked after. Uh, yeah, It's a exactly. win-win for everybody. Like. You know, you don't have to be some selfless person to work in the service of other people. Sometimes it can be a very selfish thing. You feeling good about the fact that you have done something good. That's I'm fine with that. You did something good. You felt good about it. Why shouldn't you get a little reward? Yeah, the, the good thing is still happening. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I agree. I think um, maybe, yeah, maybe, and maybe it's tied to my religious beliefs of, of, of the past is that I, you know, that's sort of feeling proud or that um, self-satisfaction is a sin or whatever, Um but yeah, if I do something good, I feel good about it. So then I, um, and and you know, if that's the sole reason I do it, that's fine, I guess. So um, when did the religion go away? So when you say you were very religious, how long would you say you were religious for? Till till about eighteen or so. Um, okay. Like if we were on, if I was on this podcast now, I'd be talking about in the same way I was sort of blabbing on about modern monetary theory. It would have been Jesus. Um, I was um, like baptized in a in a bathtub, like a full as an adult, like full water, and um, you know, speaking in tongues. And um, I mean, I was trying to. I, I'd used to fake it. My nana would speak in tongues, and I'd try and just simulate like what she was doing. Um, and then you know, choir and hands in the air with the eyes closed. Like I was full on. Like you know, if he was showing like a um, like whatever Scott Morrison. Um, that was doing <laughs> that was me back in the day. Um, it it started to go away when I the people I had in my social circle had some beliefs that I found hard to wrap my head around because I, I always thought you know the religion the Jesus and the the Jesus um, was all coming from a place of love. But then people would tell me things like uh, you have to accept Jesus in your heart to be accepted into heaven. And then I said to someone, what about babies who are born in a area of the world that don't, you know, that die before they even know who Jesus is? And they said, well, unfortunately they go to hell. And I'm like, what? 
I mean, what a, that seems like a terrible technicality that Jesus could clear oh, up if he was really passionate about it. Such a simple admin change. Um, yeah, yeah. And what are, the, what, are the, what are all these babies doing in hell? Where they put them? It's it's uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. And so it was um, that was uh, that was I remember that was the first, and that was that was just someone who's my age telling me that, and it probably wasn't what the church at the time believed, but. That was the first time I heard something where I was like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't make any sense. And then from that one little thread, I slowly started to unravel everything that um, I'd sort of built up by just questioning and questioning and questioning. And then like, well, what about other religions? What about people who aren't born in a country that ever learns who Jesus is and never will? Um, uh, what a, what does, how does forgiveness work? What does, what does heaven even look like? What does hell look like? It just doesn't, um, eternity, the whole thing just started to make no sense to me. Um, so when you have so much invested in like a perspective on life, a way of understanding what life is all about, and then suddenly, you, like you said, it, it all starts to unravel in front of you. Was there a period of time where that left you without meaning, without connection? Yeah, that was... <laughs> It was about a year or two there where I was horrendous. I was um, having, I don't know what you call it, an existential existential crisis. But like I was, ha- I was having panic attacks just sitting in a room that there was nothing. I was like hyperventilating at life. Like I was, it was, I was so scared and didn't know who I could talk to about it. And um, and then I'd then I was getting then I was worried I'd be destructive. Like I was worried I'd I'd kill someone because I didn't have any moral reason not to. Like if I wanted to, if I I could just do whatever I wanted, and I started to be scared of who I was, and would I would I do something horrible to someone just because I didn't feel like there was any consequence to life, or would I kill myself because there wasn't any consequence to life, and was the only thing that stopped me doing that because I was fearful of the pain of it. It was um about a year or two. And I didn't seek out a counsellor. I didn't seek out help. I, it was a really weird period of um, just like feeling myself sort of be completely pulled apart and then slowly put back together again. I don't know why. And then what helped me get through that was just trying to be present more often. You know, video games were part of it. I just I found purpose in video games. I found like I could just play a video game and I wouldn't think about this stuff. And then gradually I started to do more and more things in life without thinking about is space infinite and what's our place in it <laughs> like it was um i just try and have a nice lasagna for dinner <laughs> so and gradually well, now then because i'm, I'm conscious uh, of a time today and we're gonna have a in there's a special episode coming soon where we're gonna have a deeper dive into rosehaven hopefully so if anybody's listening going i'd love to hear more about rosehaven because the final series of rosehaven is coming up when does it actually do we know when it's on has that been announced yet august august 4th I think. august the august 4th. 4th so we'll make sure that um yeah we'll do a proper big plug for that but it, there's going to be also a hopefully a special episode of philosophy around uh rosehaven uh, that i'm looking forward to but we're into the area i normally ask people at the end of the you know, show what happens when we die and the real reason I ask what happens when we die is because I want to get to this conversation which is if you are of the belief that you know we were nothing beforehand and we'll go back to being nothing and perhaps we are you know an exception you know in this infinite universe that just through some ridiculous you know state of circumstances you know perfect circumstances we have happened as human beings then what do you think is the purpose of us 
being here? What is the meaning of our lives if you take away, you know, those broader religious or spiritual frameworks? Um, I think it's, I'm starting to think it's less about purpose and more about gratitude that we have a crack Mm -hmm. at it. Like if life is so um, unlikely in this universe, and I, I, you know, I do believe there must be life elsewhere in the universe because it's so big, but you know, if, if the if the chance of you and I being alive is so small, it's less about trying to find a purpose as to why we're alive, and more just feeling grateful that we've had a crack, we've had a chance to experience it at all, <laughs> you know. And um, so my, my purpose now has just become feeling grateful that I had a I got to have a go at it. And you know, I'm, that I guess that answer comes with a certain amount of acknowledgement that I was born in a country that um, doesn't have a, a war going on, and I was, you know, my life is pretty comfortable, um, you know, and maybe I wouldn't have that view if I was born in a country that was at war right now. So um, that philosophy is, I guess, linked to sort of my upbringing. But um, for me personally, it is just trying to feel grateful that I've, I'm alive at all. I suppose. Well, that's and, um, an extra layer of gratitude too, isn't it? That, you know, that you are grateful that you were born into circumstances where you have the luxury of gratitude. Which means I'm being successful at the purpose I've chosen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's double gratitude. Um yeah. Um, um, all right. Well, as a humanity, then, if we, if our, I don't know, if whatever our purpose is, is our purpose, if you were going to rate, you know, our evolution of humanity at the moment out of 10, with 10 being we're absolutely nailing it and zero being, you know, work to do, needs improvement, um, where would you rank us on that one to 10 scale at the moment? I think the purpose of humanity is to love each other. Um, and so on that scale, we're maybe a one or a two. Like we haven't completed, I think zero being complete annihilation, one being we're on the verge of absolutely annihilating each other. And I think, so I think we're sitting around a two. I think if everyone loved everyone, you know, you could leave your door open, you could leave your bike unhinged at the cafe, you know, you could, um, we wouldn't have wars, we'd be much better at um, handing out resources and distributing wealth. Um, so I think we're about a two as a society. I think um, I think I think one would mean we're like finger over the trigger of nuclear bombs, and I think right now we're at a two, at a ten. Um, are you hopeful, optimistic um, about our capacity as human beings to? I mean, we've been through, yeah, you know, a, a lot of challenges over the history of humanity, and currently it feels like we're facing a whole bunch of them at once. Um, yeah. Uh, how do you, yeah. How do you feel about our potential as human beings to get through all this? I'm I'm worried COVID will either mean we stay at a two once this is sort of passed, or we go to a one. Um, I'm hopeful that maybe COVID will bring us to a three. Maybe something slightly better will happen. Um, I'm a little worried though that like COVID, things like climate change, until the shit starts hitting the fan we probably won't do anything about it and then when we do do something about it it'll be the wealthy countries looking after themselves first and then in the same way we've done the vaccine rollout um i i don't know um but it does feel like we're sort of at any period of change and hopefully hopefully we're heading in a positive direction um but uh i don't know i i don't I know. Fingers crossed. I will, uh, yeah. I'm hoping we get to a three at the end of this. When you're at your best, when Luke McGregor is at his best, what does that look like? I think I'm present. um, And when I'm really present, 
I think my general mood is good. Um, I, I think a lot of my behaviour that I don't like comes from a place of fear of the future or wanting to get re revenge for some a past hurt or something. I feel like when I'm actually present um, and then not sort of driven by all the whatever pain I've had in my past, um, then I'm then I'm able to be much more in a state of um, loving my fellow. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that's um, I don't know why I'm feel, I don't know why I feel so hesitant to use the word love. I don't know why, even though that does play a large part of my philosophy. I don't know why I feel lame or embarrassed to say the word love. I don't know why. Like I'm worried people will switch off as soon as I use it. So I'm always trying to find another word. But I think when I'm in a when I'm at my best, I'm in a state of love. No, to be honest, um, mate, if they made it through our conversation around modern monetary policy, I feel like love's not going to get them switched off. <laughs> and I, I can't wait to ask you about. Um, God at the airport uh, <laughs> next time you're about to jump on a plane. Part of me really wants to ask you all this stuff, Will, too, but I've, I've you know, as, as I listen to your podcast, I've heard you talk about this stuff as well. Um, so I'm hesitant to ask you the same questions I've heard you answer before, but... Um, well, I've got a few um, more still, Luke, before we finish up today. I do highly recommend oh, that yeah, people sorry, yeah, um, uh, watch Rosehaven August 4th on the ABC, the final series of Rosehaven, and there will be... Especially if you love economics <laughs> and... Death, <laughs> the theory of death. <laughs> so it's, we really dive deep into it and real estate and local real I've estate. I've said this to you before. I've said it uh, to your lovely on-air partner many times as well, uh, which is that I think the, the greatest thing about Rosehaven is that I grew up in a country town and it is so well representative of what a country town is without – taking the piss out of what country town people are. Like it does, but in the right way. It shows the eccentricities and, you know, the nature of being in a small community or the various characters from a small community, but it never feels like you are being, you know, mocking or dismissive of those characters. And I think that's the genius of the show to me, that it really does sum up what it's like to live in a country town in Australia, like as a television show, it's not a documentary, clearly, but I think the balance of where you found the humour without exploiting the nature of those sort of people who live in those places has been the great genius of Rosehaven for me. It um, would have made it much harder to get locations too if we'd been constantly <laughs> mocking them. <laughs> so do you mind if we use the pub again? Yeah. No. There's a practicality to it, I guess. But Yeah, exactly. But it, it does, I think, I think as much as I love living you know, in a city, I, I do – think it's a bit overrated the lack of um the, the isolation we experience nowadays like we all have friends and stuff but that small town knowing your neighbors or knowing you're um having a bit of a community it's a it's a it's a it's really good for, you know assuming it's a good community i guess it's really good for your mental health and it's um it's a it's a great little support network of um you know of uh, people you can rely on i think with rosehaven it was almost like i was living out my small town dreams um of having like a you know knowing the you know, when you walk down the road, you'll see someone you know, or um, you know, going to the bakery and they know your order, or just little things like that is just stuff that I'd love to have in my life, but I don't. Um, uh, so Roseham was almost like a little, a little outlet for that. And Celia grew up in a small town, so she knew what that was like. So it was, um, yeah, it was like wish fulfillment for me. Well, I mean, I kind of live. I'm living back in the country now, and I do live in a. Yeah, the town that I live near is 600 people, 700 people, and it does have a very Rosehaven-y feel quite a lot of the time when I just go into the local coffee shop or the local, you know, store, which is the general purpose store, which is the post office and the store and the bottle shop all, you know, in one store. I'm like, 
this is a very Rosehaven-y uh, way to be living my life. But three questions. What, what's it like when you – oh, sorry. I just wanted to say real quickly. What, what's it like when you go to the local pub and have a beer? Or is it um, – do you – do you, do you just go by yourself and you can start talking to people and there's a conversation or I don't think that I would do that. Just it's probably not in my nature as a person to do that regardless. It wouldn't matter if I was in the city or the country. I can't imagine my, myself being the sort of person. It's hard enough to get me to the local pub if my friends are already there. The idea that I would walk in without any friends there and just go, I'm going to meet some new people is not really <laughs> not really a decision yeah, I'm now making. They, now they hear it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, uh, three questions and then we're done, Luke. So uh, the first question is this. On my desk, I have as close to what I consider to be a um, motivational you know, s- sort of slogan. It just says, uh, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And the way that I interpret this, I always explain to people, is that for me, it's when I'm putting together a project, I imagine that the project is super successful like, let's just guarantee it's super successful. Everything's going well. So you've got this super successful thing. It's all going well. W- what is it? What do you want it to, to now be? And I like to think of it from that perspective. But, you know, it doesn't have to be about work. Like, it, it could be about anything. But what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? I think if I knew I couldn't fail, I'd run for prime minister and try and put some of my economics to used to make society better. I think yep. if I couldn't fail, I'd go into politics and say, and by fail, I also mean enjoy the process. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'd try and, like, I'd, I'd actually say, okay, um, I've got all these thoughts and ideas. I'd try and, I'd actually try and put them into practice because um, uh, I just think, you know, things like, simple things like um, if not eliminating political donations altogether, uh, making them completely transparent, uh, setting up... Um, independent corruption bodies um that survived no matter who was in power um you know just 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 sitting up just putting these things that made so even so put in things that even if we had bad politicians we had good institutions that were able to keep an eye on them as opposed to the sort of weaker ones we have now um that's probably what i'd do if i didn't think i could fail Good answer. I like that. Politi- anyway, yeah, poli- bad time to bring up political donations because that could be like another <laughs> oh. hour of this podcast. Oh, right. Another one of another my airport, pet Another airport chat. Yeah, that, that, that one's next time we need to miss a plane. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's start talking about political donations and how they destroy the, <laughs> the political system on every fucking level. Anyway, okay. Oh, we don't have time for it now. Uh, okay. Two more okay. questions. Uh, um, this, uh, If you could wake up one day, magic wand style, and you just have a skill, like you don't have to do your 10,000 hours to develop th- th- this skill. You just wake up and you are just particularly good at something. What would that something be? It would either be piano, um, because I just love piano. It's kind of like a drum and a guitar and mold into one, and that you've got the, mm. you can sort of do the um, you can you can sort of play a beat on it, but you can also do a melody. I just love. The, I just think the piano is just the coolest instrument. Um, but I would probably probably be able to speak another language. I think, and I'd probably mm. choose I'd probably choose Mandarin, just because China is probably the biggest country that's close to us and the one that um i guess uh i um even though i i grew up with a lot of chinese films um a lot of that was hong kong and a lot of that was cantonese but i probably i just um i just i think it'd be another language the, the language i'm learning personally is japanese just because i love video games and everything from japan but uh i think if i was just given a skill it'd be from china just because i feel like they, they seem to be the power that we have the most um and and, and animosity towards the Chinese government and 
it'd be it'd be nice to be, have a bit more of an understanding of um, where all that's coming from. Yeah, you, there is a sense of whenever you read anything about China that you're like, well, much of this may be true, but I am definitely only hearing one perspective on this. And it is very hard for me to understand what the other perspective is without understanding the language and the culture in which that other perspective is being, you know, broadcast. Yeah, like there's definitely some things where I'm just like, that doesn't sound like that's good at all in any circumstance. But there's there's, there's some other areas where I'm just like, I'd love to be able to read or talk to a local. Yeah, a lot of time when I'm reading stuff about China, I'm going, well, if this is, if how this is being presented is absolutely true, then this is no good. However, yeah. <laughs> I'm just not 100% <laughs> sure that this is exactly how things are. Yeah, it's, um, it's my brother lived there for a couple of years and learned to speak Mandarin. And um, it's amazing how, uh, like, he would just talk to people who lived, you know, people who grew up there who were the same age as him who just had no idea about Tiananmen Square. Like, they just had no... And then he'd use a VPN and show them the internet and they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe some of the things they were reading about their own country. It's such a different... Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's probably... The, it's one of the countries that fascinates me the most just because I feel like it's... um, It almost feels like if we could get China over to a more... um, Not capitalism, but more um, progressive it would really help shift the world in that direction. Like if we could solve some of China's social, I don't know, maybe that's a, I know that's a, that's a really big topic to get into at the last yeah, second. It's a very on brand <laughs> for you, Luke McGregor. One, uh, one more question and we're done. Um, I have a, a space machine, a time travel machine. I can take you to anywhere in the future, anywhere in the past. You can talk to yourself. You can ignore yourself. You can just go and visit something in history. You, you don't have to do anything on behalf of humanity, you can if you want to, but there is no requirement. It is purely selfishly for you to take this a trip on this uh, time machine. Where would you like to go? Well, okay, well, let's. I, I'm going to imagine it's just a tourist vessel, so you and I can go visit, but we can't change the timeline. I think it would be really hard to either go. It'd be between dinosaurs or going forward to see if we've got spaceships. Um, I think I'd choose dinosaurs because if I said let's go forward in time, there's a chance that maybe Earth just blows up and nothing happens. Yeah, correct. So we just sort of sit there and that's that's always my worry when people say in the future. I'm like, how far in the future are you yeah. confident that you could go? Exactly, because if, if if you and I only get one shot and we just end up in the vacuum of space and we don't get to look at anything cool, and we could have been looking yeah. at dinosaurs, <laughs> like we just we're just going to be hitting ourselves the rest of our lives. So. Um, because we can get the vacuum of space now, you know. You just you just need to have enough money. So um, uh, Jeff Bezos is about to do it, I think. So has done it by the time we're speaking. Did, did oh, it yesterday, really? yeah, I believe, right. or this morning. On you, Jeff. Um, so I would go. I would go dinosaurs. I'd go back and see if, and check out some dinosaurs. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, do you have a favourite dinosaur? I think it's the Triceratops because it's not top of the food chain, but it can defend itself. Um, so maybe that's the one I relate to. <laughs> it's like it's mid-tier. I don't know. No, I don't know. Um, probably to, uh, or one of the big ocean ones um, uh, where it's uh, – is it the – I can't remember what it's one. It's one in Jurassic Park that eats the yeah, – um, The one that jumps up and eats the – that, that character got such a bad – I don't know why she got so targeted. It's like the worst death and she'd done nothing other than try and look after the kids. Um. Yeah, it was um, one of those ones. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, I I think probably or yeah, probably Triceratops, I guess, because I feel like you could ride it and you could have it as like a horse, um, or like a like it would uh, you could train it maybe. I don't know. 
Uh, August the 4th is uh, Rosehaven on the ABC um, uh, final series. If you've never seen Rosehaven before, I highly recommend that you go back and watch all the uh, previous episodes. It's such a brilliant show. I have loved it being on air and we're going to have a little Rosehaven special hopefully uh, before it comes out on August the 4th as well. So because I am such a huge fan of the show. Luke, is there any um, anything else you would like to plug, my friend? Um... If you see Will Anderson at a pub, go up and say hi and try and start a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Ask me about if I'm interested in long-form narrative writing. If he's about to board a plane, ask him if he feels like (laughs) humans have a purpose on Earth. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, Luke. Thanks for having me.